you're traveling with somebody who is four years old to the second grade, or you yourself are four years old to the second grade, we'd encourage you to go to Kids Club. You can follow Aaron or Maine out that door. He would love to take you there. Not that Aaron's four years old or in the second grade, but it works. Some adult has to be there. Well, thank you for uh, coming this morning and joining us. It is one of those summer Sundays where I think a lot of people chose to go on vacation this week. But you are the faithful. You know, you're the people who chose to come to church. Good people. This summer, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, you see this picture of faith. And as this book of Hebrews develops, you increasingly see the author putting out an argument that Jesus is better and more superior than anything the world offers, more superior than any tradition we hold, or more superior than any practice or or thing we'd want to hold on to. He he continued to make this argument, and when you get to chapter 10, he he starts to to tell the church, listen, we're going to be persecuted. And in this persecution, what's it going to look like to cling to Jesus? And in fact, we find in the 21st century, the church is starting to get persecuted, even in the United States. Now, let's not be blind to that. Let's not be blind to the fact that right now there are people in the, in the world that are struggling to a degree we are not. One of my next-door neighbors is from Iraq. And I've gotten to spend a little bit of time from him. And if you're reading a little bit of what's going on in Iraq right now, you're finding that ISIS, a political power, an entity, is mowing through northern Iraq, challenging people, asking them a question. Convert to Islam, leave or die. Now that's persecution. That's a persecution we're not facing. That's one of the reasons we need to be aware of the world, the global church, so we can be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are indeed facing that kind of persecution. But that's not the only kind of persecution that exists. Several different missionaries came home from the field this week with a debilitating disease that we don't have a shot to cure yet. Another sense of the way that the world is persecuting the church. But guys, that doesn't take away from the challenges we have in our own life, does it? It's one thing to be persecuted in that way, but that doesn't mean that we don't have challenges We don't need to cling to Jesus in our own regard. We don't go through trials. We don't go through tribulations ourselves. And so this morning, as we work through Hebrews and we get to Hebrews 11, 17, we're going to take another look at the life of Abraham. And so far, as we've walked through Hebrews 11, it started in 11, 1. It said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That that faith is essentially us taking God at his word. That, That we, it's the... We're going to believe God's word. We're going to say this great hope that we have, Jesus, is true. And we're going to live like it. And and there's an early test in in verse 3. When God says the universe was created by his word, do you believe him? He challenges you early on. Are you willing to take God at his word? And, And then he wants to continue to expand this perspective of faith. And he gives you both Abel and Enoch. And the interesting things about Abel and Enoch is we know nothing about them at all except that they were faithful. God attributes faith to them. So you start to see this picture that faith is not about our works. It's not about a list of things we do right. Because in this day and age, we can quickly make the mistake to think that faith is a checklist of right or wrong 
or a moral code rather than a belief in Jesus Christ where we are giving him everything. And, and that's the picture of faith that gets presented. It's trusting God implicitly. It's giving him everything. And when it turns a corner in verse 7, you get Noah, you start to see that picture. Because Noah gets presented with this cultural challenge. Build a really big boat. Now this week, my family's out of town. So I'm doing what a lot of people are doing. I watched a lot of movies. One of them was Noah. It's a fascinating movie. By the way, if I ever mention a movie, this is not an endorsement that you should go see it, rent it, want to watch it. I just did. There are a lot of parts of that movie that don't come close to equating to biblical truth. There are a lot of parts of that movie that I think are probably offensive to God, truth be known. However, that movie does make you wrestle with the reality of what Noah had to do, the countercultural movement of building a boat in the days he lived in. And it does make you live with the reality of what did it look like to trust God when the water started coming up? What did faith look like? And you see this picture of Noah that faith for Noah was trusting that what God said was true and that how God said it was going to happen, it was going to happen. So Noah put his faith in God and built an ark. It continues and gives us three different pictures of Abraham. In verse 8, God calls, shows up to Abraham, a pagan man, and says, I want you to come with me. I want you to follow me. I want you to give up some things, and let me take you to a land you do not know, and I'll make it your home. And we see how Abraham was faithful. He left his comfort zone to follow God. We see a second picture with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, God says, I will give you a child. And they don't believe him. In fact, they laugh at him a couple times. And God keeps reiterating this promise, I will be faithful to you. I will be faithful to you. I will be faithful to you. And you find at the end of that story that faith for Abraham and Sarah was not in their own abilities or their own abilities to do things or accomplish things. Their faith wasn't found by looking in the mirror and bustling up strength and fortitude. Their faith was in the nature and character of God. That it didn't rely on what they could do or accomplish, but it was at them looking at a much bigger picture of God. And finally, we landed in Hebrews eleven seventeen this morning to see the third and last picture of Abraham we're going to look at this summer. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall be your offering, shall your offering be named. He considered what God was able, even, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, before we take a trip back into the Old Testament, which has been our pattern this summer, before we make that word, we need to consider one word that shows up in this term. We need to consider this word tested because it's actually a pretty critical term in the New Testament. It, it happens a lot of different ways. And in fact, James 1, 2, and 3 say this. Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now we're going to circle back to James. But the first thing we need to consider is that there are trials of various kinds. That's the first thing we need to appreciate about testing. That there are lots and lots of different kinds of testing. Let me give you several examples. First, we can be tested by sin. 
We can go through trials as a result of sin. A couple quick examples. If I drive down the road at 95, I'm likely to experience a trial with red and white and blue lights in my rearview mirror, aren't I? I'm going to endure a trial that's probably going to come along with a $250 ticket, and I'm going to feel persecuted in that moment. But, but sometimes we need to recognize our sin, and James gets real thorough about that, that we can't blame God for our trials that come along with our sin. They're not God's fault. It's our fault. We walk ourselves into dumb situations, and we have to pay the human price for that. I've, I've always laughed at people who blame police officers for tickets. Like, you were going 80 yeah, I know. I don't know why you wrote me a ticket. It's 55. I, I don't, you know, like take some responsibility for our actions. I'm not like harping on speeders. I've done my fair share. But you get the point. But we can also be subjected to one another's sins. If I show up at your house tonight at 2 o'clock and steal your car, which I might do just for fun, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to endure trial because there's going to be something that's going to be gone from you. You're going to have to figure out how to work that out. And yet there are other kind of trials as well. There are more biblical kinds of trials. You find in the Bible that there are the characters like Job. Job has tried over and over and over again. And yet one of the most interesting things about Job's trials is God starts it. God starts Job and says, have you considered my servant Job? And Job walks through a lot of things. And so you start to see this picture where God is interested in testing our faith. And it's not to see if we'll prove worthy. It's to grow us in faith. It's to grow us up in faith. And at the same time that God could play a role in that, Satan plays a role in it too. Although we have to recognize that Satan can't play a role in it unless God allows it. You you find in the the latter days of Jesus' life that Peter and Jesus are having a conversation. And Jesus says to Peter, Oh, Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to own you. But I pray that your faith would not fail you. Now that's an interesting comeback from Jesus. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I pray that your faith would not fail you that you would cling to me, that you'd hold on to me, that I would be the thing you clung to in the darkness. So as we walk through this, we're acknowledging from the front side that there are lots of different kinds of trials and tribulations. This is going to be a very specific kind. We're going to look at it, but then we'll make some more applications as we get to the end. So turn with me to Genesis 22. Verse 1 through 19. Actually, I think it's 1 through 14. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. God showed at Abraham's door and wanted to do something in Abraham's life. He says, Abraham. And Abraham responds, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God God shows up to, to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, 
the son whom you love and give him as a burnt offering. Wow. Like, let that soak in for just a minute. Because that's not an easy request. That's not a simple request. See, it's one thing that for the Lord to ask me to part with something easy. I could give the Lord $20. My son, entirely different. Entirely different. You find in the middle of this passage that God is asking him a question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Am I really your God? Do you trust that I've got it all worked out, that I've got your best in mind? Do you have faith in me? And interestingly enough, the picture you see here is God's really challenging with something. Do you trust me or do you trust my blessings? Are you putting your hope in what I've given you? And that's a totally different challenge. Because Abraham had wanted a son so badly that finally when God gives him this fulfillment of his promise, gives him a son, it would be so easy for Abraham then to put his faith and his trust in God's provision rather than God. So he's asking him the question, do you trust me? Do you have faith in me? Because I've promised you so many things through this boy. And understand, God knew exactly what he was asking. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. In fact, God puts an emphasis on the reality that I'm asking you something hard. Something really, really hard. Something you don't really want to give up. Do you trust me? Will you offer me everything? God wants to know what the picture of our faith looks like. Are we giving him everything? Are we honoring him? Do we find him trustworthy? On January 27th, 1994, I was a college freshman. I got a phone call that day that was earth-shaking. Earlier that afternoon, my dad called and let me know that my mom was going to the hospital. Later that night, my mom died. Now, I, don't know, I know some of you have been through the loss of a parent, and I promise you at any age, it's not pleasant. As a college freshman trying to figure out who I was, it felt to me especially unpleasant. One of the interesting things that I walked through in that was trying to figure out what to do with God at the loss of my mom. About three weeks later, I, woke, I, I couldn't sleep. In fact, I went into a pretty good depression for a while. I slept a lot during the day and couldn't sleep at all during the night. One night about three in the morning, I went and sat on this hill outside of my dorm and just prayed and prayed and prayed. And it was a really fascinating experience because that night, I felt like the Lord spoke to me in a pretty clear way. And I felt like what God said to me was, do you trust me? See, as I was walking through this trial, this agonizing pain, the only thing, the only question that I could consider is, do I trust God? See, the night as I sat on the hill, it occurred to me that I had two choices. One, I could trust that God was doing something I didn't understand. And that possibly I'd never be comfortable with. 
or I could decide that God wasn't trustworthy at all. And if God wasn't trustworthy at all, why believe in him? And as I started weighing that out on a hill, God just showed me so much grace that I started to get this little picture that he would take care of me for my whole life without a mother. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's really hard. My mom's been gone for 20-something years, and it still causes me pain. But you know what the coolest part about it? God grew my faith. I learned on that day that he was trustworthy. Now, that didn't mean I had all the answers. And that didn't mean I could explain it. And that didn't mean I could say why it happened. And it didn't mean, it just meant on that day, God was trustworthy. And in this particular trial that Abraham's going in, I suspect as God calls him to do that, God calls him to give up his son, I suspect Abraham doesn't sleep much that night. And I suspect Abraham probably goes and sits on a hill and asks himself a question. Is God trustworthy? Do I trust him? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham got his answer. Abraham found God to be very trustworthy. Now, we need to appreciate for just a moment that this is not the kind of thing that God does to everybody. God's likely not going to show up to your life and say, sacrifice your son. If he does, that's a very good opportunity to show up in a pastor's office or an elder's and talk about it. God communicates very differently and operates differently now than he did back in the Old Testament. We'd love to explain that more to you. However, it is pretty common that God will ask us to sacrifice something. He'd ask us, do you really trust me? Are you willing to trust my promises? And the interesting thing about this is that Abraham that night had to walk himself through his experiences with God. He had to look back in his life and see, wait a second, God told me to leave. And I followed him. And we came to this great place, and he, he provided for us. And, and I never thought I'd have a, a son, and I really didn't think I'd have a son at 99. But somehow my wife got pregnant, and he gave us a son. God's been really faithful to me. And he walked himself through his faith and started to see over and over and over again, God has been faithful. 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 And one of the stopping points on an application for us to think about and to consider is if you're enduring a hardship, if you're enduring a trial, if you're in the middle of a really dark night, because those happen to believers when we're not sure how life's going to work out, stop and look at your faith and get down a, pull out a piece of paper and start writing down your testimony and start looking at all the pictures of Wait, God was faithful. Wait, God was faithful. Wait, God was faithful. 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 And you're going to start to see God's character, and that's going to be how you cling in the midst of that. That's how you cling to the Lord in the midst of a trial, 
And I suspect that's exactly what Abraham did. In fact, in Hebrews 11, 19, we'll come back to that. We'll circle back to that in just a second. It says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham walks in faith, and he prepares, and he gets his son ready. And the fascinating thing is, is if you watch through this, Abraham believes wholeheartedly that God will be faithful. To the extent that he knows, even if he has to sacrifice his son, God would bring him back. Now I want you to see these pictures of faith. Again, understanding this is not simple. This required a lot of agony. On the third day, verse 4, it's a three-day hike, by the way, 50 miles from where they were to Mount Moriah. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they both of them went up together. Abraham leaves his servants behind. Why? Well, you're pretty much left to assume he knows he's going to have to sacrifice his son, and bringing some extra guys won't be helpful. These guys are likely to say, "Ah, that's not your best move. And, And so in faith, Abraham says, great, we'll bring some help, but we're leaving the help behind. Just me and the boy are going up the hill. But the interesting response is his response to those guys. Because if you look carefully at verse 5, and this is one of those places where our English New Testament doesn't help us as much, you'll actually find that all of these terms for going, worshiping, and returning are all plural. That what the text really says is we are going, we are going to worship, and we will come back to you. That in the middle of his stepping out in faith, stepping out to trust God, he's explaining to these guys God's faithfulness. We are going. We are going to worship. And we are coming back. Verse 7. Isaac, a smart kid. Isaac says to his father, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So, both, so, they, both, <laughs> so they went both of them together. In the middle of a trial, Abraham hung on to the idea that God would provide for him. That God would provide for him. Abraham's faith, like we looked last time, it wasn't in his person. It wasn't in his strengths. His faith was in God's provisions. His faith was in God's promises. And here, Abraham doesn't even look at his circumstances. He puts his faith in God. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Is faith easy? Absolutely no. We can get this idea that faith is simple. Now, now there's no, you read your Bible, we, we are yoked to Jesus Christ. That, that clinging to him is our best plan. It's all we've got, but that doesn't mean that we don't walk through hardship. 
It doesn't mean that we don't endure trials of many kind. And it doesn't mean that there aren't really, really hard decisions and choices that we have to make from time to time. Where we have moments where we have to stop and say, do I really trust God? Do I really trust him? Or is this going to be a bend plan? Moments where we have to say, God, are you going to provide for me? Or am I going to have to provide for myself? And, and we see Abraham through this step by step by step trusting God. Now, we've walked through a lot of these passages, and I've been really clear about the fact that these are extraordinarily normal people. Abraham sinned throughout the book of Genesis. So he's not perfect. But what you start to see in Abraham is this increased faith in God. That the longer he walked with God, the more God had built a testimony of faithfulness to him, and the more he was able to cling to it. So what happens? Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord stops what's going on and says, now I know where you're at with this. Side note, did God change his mind? Answer, no. You actually find a lot of times in Scripture that our God, the God we love and worship, is way more the God of a process than he is of the ends. That he likes to see how things unfold. That we get called into things to see that we'll be faithful. And to see what it looks like for us to struggle and wrestle with faith because it's purifying. It's refining to us. And it's always, const- it's always calling us to trust him more. And to live in greater dependence to him. In verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And as it is said of this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And you find that that God had made promises to Abraham. And Abraham clung to those promises. Even through some really dark nights, even in a 50-mile walk, even picking up a knife, he was clinging to the promises of God. And God was trustworthy. God showed himself to be trustworthy. God provided a ram so that he didn't have to sacrifice his son. God made a provision. One of the most interesting things about this story is that this happens on Mount Moriah. And if you want to follow Mount Moriah in your Bible, you start to find that Abraham gets called here. He gets called to walk to this random mountain to sacrifice his son. The next place this hill shows up, they build the temple on it. This turns out to be a pretty incredible hill because later on in history, you find it again. You find that this hill happens to sit outside Jerusalem. And on the same hill, God has his son. And did God spare 
his son. No, in the same act of faith and obedience, God did not spare his son, but sent his son, killed his son on our behalf so that we could be free from sin, so that we could have a relationship with him again. See, God absolutely understands this moment. Abraham gets sent here asking if he'll give his son. God goes there intentionally knowing he will. It's an interesting story you find in Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who doesn't understand our trials. We have a high priest who's walked through everything that we do. Guys, it's real easy for us to sit down and say, well, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. God doesn't appreciate the struggle, the trial in this. And let's just be honest about the fact he does. One of the interesting things about the New Testament that started comforting me in my later years in college was the reality that according to Scripture, Jesus' dad, Joseph, clearly dies at some point. You see him at the beginning, and then he's not there anymore. So you're left with this idea that at a young age, Jesus had to have lost a parent. And for some strange reason, that became extraordinarily comforting to me in college. Man, I have no idea, Lord, if you know, wait, you do know what this is like. This actually happened to you on earth. You you know exactly the agony and the pain that I feel. You've walked through this. God is trustworthy. Let's turn back to Hebrews 11. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham. By faith, trusting in God, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was tested. God was testing him. He asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. But in reality, the question being asked was, do you trust me? Am I enough for you? And Abraham acted in faith. And you see that picture in Genesis over and over again. That Abraham's faith keeps increasing in God, and it 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 keeps increasing in God. So he continues to take God at his promise and live like it's true. In uh, 2007, I moved to Dallas. 2002, I moved to Dallas. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. In one of the chapels, uh, one of my first chapels, Dr. Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Seminary, um, was explaining to the seminary new students. He said, guys, you, you need to understand that this is going to be a really hard year for some of you. That when you want to enter into the Lord's will, you want to enter into his plan, uh, Satan desires to attack you. I found that to be extraordinarily true, by the way. But one of the, the things he, he said to this group of seminary students that has been so true for me, he said, don't doubt in the dark what God revealed to you in the light. And that walked me through some of the darkest days that I experienced in seminary of just struggling with life issues and struggling with my faith, is to realize that sometimes when you're in the dark, it's helpful to just acknowledge, I'm in the dark. I'm in this place that feels very lonely. 
I'm in this place that feels very destitute. I'm in this all by myself. And to start recounting things. And that's why we put Abraham's faith before you this morning. So that you would sit down and you would recount your faith. And you would pull out a piece of paper and start writing your testimony out. And seeing all the places where God has been faithful to you. And you'd start claiming his promises in your own life. So that in the dark, you're starting to realize what the light looks like. You're reminding yourself of who he is and his nature and character and his promises that he's made to you. And you start to see these pictures over and over and over again of God's faithfulness. And those are the things, those are the things to cling to. That's how you walk through a trial. To go back to James 1, 2 and 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what, the, what James is saying is, count it all joys when you meet trials. Now let's be clear about this. James is articulating, we don't get giddy about trials. We're not like, yes, car wreck! That's awesome! At the same point, you, we need to appreciate when we walk into hardship that this is an opportunity for God to prove himself faithful. That we can, it's a God moment where we can stop and say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I'm going to trust you. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm going to trust you. In fact, that's why it says, count it all joy. The difference between happiness and joy, happiness is about the world and what's going around you. Joy is when you find yourself in Jesus. And when you realize that you are in Jesus Christ, it's easy to have joy in any situation. I don't know how the Lord's going to work this out, but I know he will. I know that he will. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that's exactly what we've seen in the life of Abraham. The testing of his faith produced steadfastness. Now, just to define the term steadfastness, just think about it as faith endurance. The ability to continue to cling to God when things don't go the way you want them to. When you're going through a hard spot, steadfastness is the endurance of faith that allows you to cling to Jesus. In verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that the more you grow in your ability to trust God, the more you grow in your ability to see Him faithful, it has its full effect. And you have complete trust in Jesus. Now, I don't think we're going to experience that this side of heaven. But you see a picture in Abraham where he was, he was pretty close. He was offering God everything. And in fact, in James 1.12, it continues on the theme of trials. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed are you for enduring trials, for finding God faithful. And what James gives us this picture is God is always growing us in our faith, always growing us to trust him more. We've been walking through this study in Hebrews 11, looking at faith, and asking the question, do we trust his promises? Do we take God at his word? One of the best books of the Bible 
for trials and struggles is the book of Psalms. I've often told folks that one of the best reasons to study the book of Psalms is so that when you walk through something later in life, you'll know where to go. I used my old Bible, I would kind of make notes on what Psalms and what situations, because Psalms are a beautiful thing. What you find in the book of Psalms is an extraordinarily unique book of the Bible because they're prayers written by men that are inspired by God. And so the cool thing in that picture is you find when men complains to God and says, God, where are you? I have no idea what's going on. God's clearly okay with that. God's clearly okay with our struggles. And he's clearly okay with us verbalizing them. The other thing you find is incredible promises. Psalm 50, 15 says this, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Let's consider a promise of God. Call upon me in the day of trouble. If you're in the middle of a dark night, and you call upon the name of the Lord, it doesn't mean that that night he shows up and digs you out of it. I've walked through some hard situations with people in my life, and you say, you know, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and you take one step, where are you? You're still in the valley of the shadow of death. If you take three more steps, where are you? You're still in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, somewhere in that faithful walk of obedience, trusting that God is your shepherd— Somewhere after your 100th or 300th or 900th step, you'll be out of the valley of the shadow of death. But he will deliver you in this life or in the other. And you shall glorify me because you will praise me because you will see how I acted faithfully towards you is the picture in Psalm 50. Jeremiah 17, 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And as people who follow Jesus Christ, our trust is the Lord. It's him and him alone. Isaiah 49, 23 says, Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. God will prove himself true. Now in closing, I want to land in two passages in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1 if you, says this. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I think we'd recognize that all of us have been grieved by various trials. Either we've just come out of one, we've got one in our past, or we've got one coming. They exist everywhere. Continues in 7, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that we appreciate the fact that our trials, our struggles, our tribulations, all that we're enduring, all that we're walking through, will grow in us a faith that allows us to cling to Jesus. Romans 8 a great chapter. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That though we struggle and we have trials and temptation, there's so many things going on, it's not worth comparing to what heaven will be like. And he finishes his argument in that chapter with this. 
8, 37 through 39. Now in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Abraham had faith, and he clung to God. He reminded himself over and over and over and over again of God's promises. As we walk through this series on faith, I don't want you to walk away with this idea that faith is simple and easy. Faith actually can be an awful lot of work some days. And it requires us to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness over and over and over again. And the beautiful part about that is that God shows himself true. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. That it's the authority. Father, thank you that in it we can be encouraged, we can be rebuked, we can be challenged in righteousness. But, Father, we can also be comforted. And I know, Father, in this room there can be a variety of folks who are struggling or suffering through all kinds of trials or temptations. Father, I pray that we would cling to your promises and know that you're true. And that you would grow us in steadfastness. That our faith would grow in endurance. As we trust you all the more and all the more and all the more. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.